You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, the Bible says you can become wise, but it says this journey of wisdom, well, in a lot of ways, it's like a journey into space. Now imagine, imagine if you found out today that a year from now, you're going to be going into space. Well, you would need a few things, wouldn't you? You need actually a lot of things. You would need, uh, you know, a spaceship, uh, something that costs billions of dollars and lots of years to build. You would need a space suit. You would need lots of fuel, and you would need lots of knowledge. You would need to, to know things that it takes people years to study and learn. In fact, it's such a big endeavor, really, so far to date, There's only a handful of governments that have been able to accomplish this feat and send people into space. You need all kinds of things to pull it off. But here's what the Bible is going to say to us this morning. You, You can have everything you need, but still not get there. Unless you have, if you're going into space, you need one of these. We've got a picture of the shuttle launch pad. So I want to direct your attention not to the rocket, but to the thing the rocket is sitting on, the shuttle launch pad. This thing is 747 feet tall. In fact, if you squint there in the bottom left corner, that thing that looks like an ant, that's a pickup truck. That's how big this shuttle launch pad is. It has to hold 900,000 gallons of liquid oxygen. It has to be able to hold up that shuttle weighing 178,000 pounds. As the shuttle takes off, it has pumps that will send a half a million gallons of water all over it just to keep the thing from burning down. Now, Imagine if you took one of these uh, fancy billions of dollars rocket ships after you've done all these things to prepare and all the equipment, and you try to launch it out of your backyard. You'll never even get started, will you? All you're going to do is burn the neighborhood down. See, your journey, it's got to start in the right place, and this is how it works with wisdom. God's given us a lot of equipment to train us, hasn't he? He's given us his word. He's given us even nature, what we call general revelation. We can look around how the world works works. We can look inside of us. He's given us an ability to reason. He's given us conscience. He's given us this place. He's given us the church and other believers. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's equipped us with all kinds of things, but you won't get anywhere on your journey of wisdom without starting at the right place. So what's the right starting point according to the Bible? Our psalm today says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is is your shuttle launch pad on your journey to wisdom. So here's our big idea for today. This is how I would say it. You must be wowed to become wise. You must be wowed to become wise. Hope you're in Psalm 111 by now. We're going to read. We'll just read the whole psalm, and then we'll talk about it for a little bit. Starting in verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all those who delight in Him. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works and giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. 
They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. It's one of my favorite Psalms. We're going to begin at the end, verse 10, talking about the fear of the Lord. Now, y'all, this is a phrase you won't just find here. This is a phrase that's repeated over and over and over again in the Old Testament, every genre, from the very beginning, all the way back to Genesis. And so it's almost as if, you know, just as God is first getting ready to give His people the Bible, His Word, as He's He's writing it down. He's saying, if you're ever going to get anywhere, if you're going to get off the launch pad on your journeys with this, here is where you need to start. This word, this is your rocket, but the fear of the Lord, that's going to be your launch pad, your starting point. So what does fear mean? You know, that we don't have a perfect English translation for this Hebrew word, and so it's easy to misunderstand. You know, we think of fear of being in terror, uh, being afraid. But you know, what's interesting, in, in scriptures, almost always, when an angel or some kind of uh, heavenly being appears to somebody, almost always the first thing they have to say is, fear not, don't be afraid. It's almost as if that's what they cover in like angel orientation. You know, you're going to show up to these people and they're going to throw a level five conniption fit because they've never seen you before. So the first thing you got to tell them is, don't be afraid. So when when you think about it, even as we use that English word fear, there's really two kinds of fear. I mean, there's a fear that makes you run away, a fear that fills you with terror, but there's also this type of fear that kind of makes you want to draw near to something. Um, You could think of it like if you've ever met a celebrity, he's like your favorite person in the whole world, and you meet him, and all of a sudden you're kind of tongue-tied. Guys, you can think about when you're younger, and that girl you have a crush on comes and says hello to you, you know, and she says hello, and you say something like, uh, that's all you can get out. You can't even remember your name. It, it's these, it's this kind of mesmerizing fear. I think best way to translate it is really use two English words. It's a mix of awe and reverence. Awe and reverence. It's these moments we experience where our jaw is on the floor and we are wowed. One of the, the best places I've seen this is when you see just how powerful and big nature can be. And so I remember the first time I went and saw the Grand Canyon, and you just can't hardly comprehend how huge it is. Y'all, if you've ever seen a picture of the Grand Canyon, you have not seen the Grand Canyon. It is not the same. It's unbelievable how big it is. And all you can do is look at it and say, wow. I remember one time I went down to, I was in Biloxi, Mississippi, right after Hurricane Katrina hit, and just seeing the destruction and how powerful nature must have been. And my jaw hit the floor. I remember one time driving down the coastal highway, and the ocean is about 100 yards that way. And you know those big, huge oil tankers that are like several football fields long? Yeah, there's one of those a couple hundred yards that way, on the other side of the highway from the ocean. And I remember I just couldn't comprehend how nature could be so powerful to make that happen. All I could do is just stand in awed silence and stare at it. So it's those moments that that capture this awe and reverence where you are speechless, your jaw is on the floor, you are in awe. If you can say anything at all, all you can say is, wow. There's an irony there, isn't there, when you think about it? So what's wisdom all about? Wisdom, we usually think, is all about knowledge, understanding, 
comprehension, but awe and reverence, what it's talking about here, is all about encountering things beyond your understanding. It's all about being confronted with things beyond your comprehension. It's almost like the Bible is saying, you know what, Uh, if you want to know a lot, you need to start by realizing how much you don't know. If you want to be wise, wisdom starts when we realize how small we are and how big He is. That's why we must become we must be wowed to become wise. And this psalmist, he's wowed by a lot of things. Let's jump back up to the beginning, verse 1 through 3. Because see, something happens when we see God and we countered Him and we are wowed by Him. What do we do? We worship. That's what we see in these first three verses. You must be wowed into worship. This is how we naturally respond when we have these moments of awe and reverence. The writer, he's wowed by two things. He's filled with awe and reverence about two things. He, he's talking about uh, the majesty of his works. He talks about the splendor and the majesty of his works. And these two words, splendor and majesty, y'all, these are wow, otherworldly words. This word splendor, it, it's used to describe breathtaking, blinding light, light from another world. And so you may think about Saul on his road to Damascus encounters this bright light. And when he's retelling the story later on, he says, I saw a light brighter than the noonday sun brighter than anything I'd ever seen. It's that word splendor. Majesty is a, it's a Grand Canyon word. It's, it's kind of this bigness and beauty all mixed together where you see something and you can't help but be mesmerized. He also talks about being wise, being wowed by God's righteousness. And this righteousness, he says, endures forever. Now, this word endures, this is a a meaning-packed word, too. It, it was a word that was used to describe like heroes and Greek gods, superheroes, uh, people like He-Man. I mean, these guys that are unshakable, undefeated, superhuman. They always win. They never die. And so, kids, you think about whoever your favorite superhero is or whatever your favorite cartoon is, the hero of that. It doesn't matter how dicey things seem to get. You always know in the end he's going to win. By the time that episode's over, or you close the final page of that book, the good guy is going to win. And that's this word, endure. The hero will endure. Now, I want you to notice also how he worships. So as he, he's wowed by this righteousness of God that in, endures, what does he do? He worships publicly. He worships with other people. He says in verse 1, he goes to what he calls the upright. This is like his, his inner circle, his squad his circle of friends. And then he goes to the congregation. That's like his church. And so what the psalmist is saying from verse 1, from the very beginning, he's saying worship is a team sport. Worship is something we do together. And this is absolutely how we naturally react. When we're wowed by something, what do we do? We share it. When we see something that wows us, we grab a friend and we say, you've got to see this, don't we? We do that about everything. I thought, C.S. Lewis, he summed it up well. He has a book about the Psalms called Reflections on the Psalms. And this is what he said about this verse. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. And listen to this. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. The delight is incomplete until I get to tell somebody about it. 
until I get to worship with someone. Our worship to God is incomplete until it's expressed with others. Y'all, this is so important for you and I to keep in mind. Because never before in human history has it been easier to isolate yourself when it comes to your spiritual life. It's so easy to think, you know, worship is just about me and God. Okay, worship songs, no problem. I can just listen to my car as I'm driving along. Open up God's Word, no problem. I can just put on a podcast and I can do that. Just me and God doing our own thing. Listen, this is so important. If you think worship is about just you and God without involving anyone else, you have believed a lie. That is an American idea. It is not a biblical idea. Because the Bible says our delight in God is incomplete until it is expressed with those around us and with other believers. That's what the psalmist is saying. So he worships publicly. The next one is surprising to me. It's not how we usually think. He worships with his mind. In verse 2, did you know worship wasn't just about warm fuzzies? You can worship with your mind. Good news, all you nerds. You can worship with your mind. And again, this is what we naturally do with any other subject. When there's something we love, it captures our interest. Maybe it's music, movies, sports, animals, whatever it is. What do we do? We learn all we can about that subject. In fact, I found out this week, verse 2 has been written above the entrance to the science department at Cambridge University for over 200 years. Isn't that interesting? One of the world's leading scientific institutions quotes a worship psalm as you enter their building. They do that because there's a a pattern here. Notice the pattern. You, You study with your mind only after you've learned to delight. That's the heart. Only after you've learned to worship. It's only those who have been wowed by God that ever begin this journey of wisdom, that ever set out to learn about Him. And so again, your awe, your reverence for God, it serves as this launching pad in your journey of wisdom. You have to be wowed to become wise, is what he's saying. Next we see, verse 4 through 6, the psalmist shows us you must be wowed by His works. So what do we see, if we're not in heaven right now, what can we see that wows us and captures our awe and our reverence? Well, he says you must be wowed by His works. In verse 4, he talks about the wondrous works of God, and that may not sound like a technical term to us, but it actually is. It's referring to God's great acts of redemption in the beginning of the Old Testament. And you've heard these stories, the Exodus, uh, the Passover, wandering in the wilderness, uh, an entrance into the promised land, all these times that God intervened to save his people. And the psalmist says that, God, you have caused these wondrous works, you've caused them to be remembered. And what he's talking about is things God gave them, things like the Passover feast. And so the Passover was this one-time event, but then he gave them this feast, this celebration to help remember it. It's like God was saying, this act of salvation, it was so great that it it needs to be retold generation after generation. But we have to be clear on why God wanted them to keep celebrating it. Why did God want them to keep telling the story over and over? Well, it's not just to show, y'all, it's not just to show what God did, it's to show what God's still doing. That's why he's doing that, because he is still active, because he still saves. It was God's way of saying, listen, I want you to teach the next generation about how God freed you, because one day they're going to find themselves in their own form of slavery, and they will need to be freed. 
See, I think this has a lot of application for us. I know it does for me. When we, anytime we, we set on this journey of wisdom and, and understanding, there's a real danger of pride, isn't there? You know, because if, if I think I'm wise, then I'm tempted to say, well, it's just all up to me. I got this figured out. I know, I know what I'm supposed to do. And y'all, this is so prevalent, even in churches today. There are many in churches today who are practical deists. That means that they confess faith in the supernatural in God, but they're practical everyday, day-to-day life. They live as a deist. And a deist, you know, it's someone who says, you know, yes, God is real. He created the world. He, he even set it in motion, and then he gave us his rules. And so his rules and the moral rules and the, the laws of science and nature, and he just kind of set that thing spinning, and then he steps back, and he leaves it up to us. And so now it's us, up to us to do the right things, to know the rules and to follow the rules and to, and to figure it out. Now, I, and I can, well, hear me, I can so be tempted in this, to thinking, you know what, if I can become wise and I can figure out how things work, then good things will happen because I've figured out the system and that's how the system is supposed to work. But hear me, that does not produce the worship that God desires. All that will produce in your life is this mixture of self-reliance and legalism. Why? Because there's no wow in that. There's no wondrous works, no splendor, no majesty in that. All that leaves room for is me performing. That's all it leaves room for. So the Bible says if you follow this path, this path of practical deism, you are not wise. You have become a fool. Because you have forgotten that the God of the universe is still at work redeeming his people. So maybe that's why he even revisits the topic. You skip ahead to verse 9 and he praises, he's wowed by how God sent redemption to his people. This word redemption, it's a, it's a term that was used in the slave trade back then. It means to buy back someone. And so this may be hard to believe, but it was fairly frequent in the nation Near East, people would sell themselves into slavery. So if you were out of money and destitute or in debt, you know, there's no bank around, there's nobody to loan you any money. Really, your only choice was to sell yourself into slavery. And the problem was, in theory, you could buy yourself out of that, but practically, it was almost impossible to pay one, one's way out of slavery. Kind of like the original student loans. Some of y'all have been there, right? So a redeemer was one that stepped in and paid the fee to your master to release you. He paid the fee for your freedom when you couldn't pay it yourself. Of course, this is what they would have celebrated in the Passover. And you know the story of the Passover. God sent redemption through the blood of this innocent lamb. This innocent lamb died and his death was your ransom. It paid the price so that you could be set free. Can you put yourself back then? Can you imagine the wow, the awe, the reverence Israel would have felt when they watched death itself pass right over them because of the blood of the Lamb? Imagine their jaw hit the floor as they walked out of slavery after 400 years, having been redeemed by no other than God Himself. Wow. That's what it must have looked like to be wowed by his works. As they went on this journey, in verse 5, the psalmist says they were wowed by God's faithfulness. 
How God, he says in verse 5, provided food in the wilderness or food in the desert. And of course, he's talking about when God sent manna supernaturally to feed the manna from heaven. But there's something you have to understand, especially if your Bible translates that wilderness. Really, what we're talking about here is unsurvivable desert. There is no food. There is no water. There's nothing to sustain you. And so really, as they're wandering through that desert, that unsurvivable desert, really what they're doing is facing the limits of their ability and their wisdom. When you're, when you're in that unsurvivable desert, listen, it doesn't matter how much you know. It doesn't matter how long you're in the Boy Scouts. It doesn't matter how many Bear Grylls episodes you've watched. There's nothing there for you. If God doesn't supernaturally provide for you, you will not survive. And I think it's true for me, I think it's true for you, that we hate the desert. And we do everything we can to avoid them. We hate those places in life where we're suffering, we're famished. The whole world around us seems scarce. We don't know where food's going to come from, or the strength to make it through the day, or the comfort to conquer our sorrows. And in fact, most of us, our journey for wisdom is motivated by avoiding the desert. We spend most of our human wisdom to make sure we never have to go in the desert again, to make sure we have everything we need to avoid suffering, to stay in control. And over and over and over, the Bible says, you want to be wise? Go to the desert. Go to the desert, because in the desert is where you'll be wowed by His faithfulness. In the desert, you will see how small you are, and how big he is. In the desert, you will learn the fear of the Lord. Finally, the, the psalmist closes by saying, you, you have to be wowed by his words, his word that he has given us. In verse 7 and 8, it's a, it's a reference to the giving of the law in Mount Sinai. And in verse 8, he's, he's wowed by the certainty of God's word. He says, it's established forever. Established means absolutely certain, forever and ever. All of his promises will come to pass. But there's a little problem in verse 8. Something that I really struggled with this week. It's hard, it's hard to get over because he says, yeah, it's established forever. It's certain. But then he says it's to be performed by faithfulness and uprightness. Which I can only ask, by who? Do you remember that whole golden calf incident, Right? I mean, the ink isn't dry on the tablets, and God's laws are already being broken. And let's be real, guys. You know you. You know me. Would we have fared any better? No. No, even after thousands of years later, have any of us performed the law with perfect faithfulness and uprightness? No. We haven't done that. So how can verse 8 be true? How can his word be so certain forever and ever when no one has performed it with faithfulness and uprightness? How can you have the first part of verse 8 without the second part of verse 8? Well, there's a little clue, and it's, it comes out more in the original language, but if you back up to verse 7, he says, God's works are faithful and just. And that word faithful in verse 7, it's the same word as faithfulness in verse 8. It's the same word. And so, in verse 7, who performs God's laws with faithfulness? God does. Not you, not me, and certainly not the Israelites. And so the psalmist, 
Here's what he's not doing. He's not, you see, he's not worshiping God for giving his commandments and then worshiping the Israelites for performing them. That's not what he's doing at all. What he's doing is the psalmist, he is wowed by how God gives his law and by how God performs his law. He's wowed by how God does both sides of the equation. And this, right here, men and women, this is where the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God absolutely part ways. Absolutely. See, to be really wise, you have to be wowed by one more thing. You must be wowed by the wisdom of the cross. Paul, he breaks this down for us in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 1, he says, you know, there's a lot of people who consider themselves wise, but they're actually fools. And conversely, there's a wisdom that seems like absolute absurdity, absolute foolishness to the world. And that wisdom is the wisdom of the cross. See, it seems completely ridiculous to those who have not been wowed by God, who, those who have not experienced it yet. But what the Bible says is actually the height of wisdom. It's the highest wisdom there is. And here's why. Because it's your only way to redemption. Your only way. See, only a fool can look around at the brokenness of the world, the death, destruction, sickness, hate, strife. Only a fool can see all that around them and say, what's the problem? There's no problem here. We're not in slavery. What slavery? We're fine. We don't need redemption. Likewise, only a fool can look at the cost of their sin and say, yeah, I can pay that. I can write that check. No, see, the, the wise person realizes their slavery and then is wowed when they see the God of the universe die to pay for their sin, just like that Passover lamb. Wow. Likewise, the cross is your only way to righteousness. So it's your only way to redemption, and it is your only way to righteousness. Because only a fool, men and women, can look at the complete holiness and righteousness of God, look at his standard and say, yeah, I can measure up to that. Yeah, I can meet that standard. You know, I want my standing to be based on my performance of that law. Only a fool does that. You know what the wise person does? The wise person sees his weak, inadequate, filthy rag righteousness, sees it for what it is. And then he realizes it's nothing compared to the righteousness of God. His hero righteousness, his absolutely certain forever and ever righteousness. Then the wise person is wowed as he watches Jesus just give you his righteousness. The wise man is wowed by the fact Listen, men, when the God of the universe accepts you, delights in you, welcomes you based on the righteousness of another, based on his own superhero righteousness. Wow. That's the wisdom of the cross. Your redemption and your righteousness. So if you want to be wise, you have to be wowed. Wowed into worship, wowed by his works, wowed by his words, and wowed by the wisdom of the cross. Then you're at your launch pad. Then you're at the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. 
Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.